I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. The value of intimacy, close friendships, and romantic relationships have been well documented for people in general. As it turns out, intimate relationships are shown to be especially valuable for people with disabilities. I realize I'm stating the obvious here, but it's funny how something as obvious as a need for close relationships often gets overlooked in discussions and theorizings about disability inclusion. Human beings, regardless of ability, are social animals. We are defined by our relationships. So it's especially unfortunate that due to a range of structural and attitudinal barriers, people with disabilities are often on the outside of close relationships looking in. Today, we discuss disability and intimacy. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. With Valentine's Day having just gone by and the emphasis on romantic relationships, I thought to myself, well, what do I do for the program? And it was very tempting to talk about disabilities and dating again, but I wanted to take a deeper look at the issue and to try and explore the many facets of intimacy that touch the lives of people with disabilities and why perhaps people with disabilities struggle to form close relationships, be they romantic or just a close friendship. To help me explore this issue, I'm joined today by Carly Friedman. Carly is the Director of Research for the Council on Quality and Leadership and has researched, amongst other things, the relationships that people with disabilities have with each other as well as with members of the able-bodied community. And so she, she joins me today to talk about disability and intimacy. Carly, hello and welcome to The Pulse. Thank you so much for being willing to talk about this deep and expensive topic with me. Thanks for having me. What got you thinking about intimate relationships in relation to people with disabilities? Well, there's a really big gap and need in this area, especially for people with intellectual and de developmental disabilities. So people with disabilities are more lonely and socially isolated than non-disabled people. Uh, for example, where I work at CQL, we have a quality of life measure that we use to examine the quality of life of people with disabilities. And in 2023, only 38% of people with disabilities had intimate relationships. And this need is actually largely because of structural exclusion. So for example, uh, inaccessible environments, institutionalization and segregation, exclusion from work and discrimination in work. And then we also have attitudinal barriers, so negative views of disability, discriminatory behavior, and stigma, which can also contribute to loneliness and, and self-isolating. And then, of course, there, there can be some gatekeepers involved as well, inflicting their own values and a lack of privacy. And this kind of social isolation negatively impacts people's mental and physical health, which is really one of the reasons that drew me to this research area. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but just before we go any deeper, for the purposes of your research, how exactly did you go about defining intimacy? So intimacy can include mutual support and understanding and emotional closeness and vulnerability and physical closeness. For some people, it may also include spiritual spirituality and spiritual intimacy and connection. It's really about a degree of close bond with someone else. Now, that being said, it's really up to each person what they want and what they prioritize in terms of intimacy. 
For example, for some people, intimacy may involve sex and for other people, it may not. Well, it goes without saying that having close friends or a romantic relationship is very important to just about everybody. But when you think about people with disabilities in particular, are there any particular benefits or any significant benefits to people with disabilities of having a large number of intimate relationships? Sure. So for people with disabilities who are interested in what intimate relationships, it can help reduce social isolation and loneliness. It can increase community integration, community participation. It can benefit people's self-esteem and self-worth, especially when you're kind of navigating, navigating, sorry, pause, navigating an ableist world. Um, you know, coping with discrimination, having a partner, whether that's an intimate friend or a romantic relationship, to navigate that with you can be really helpful. It also can serve as a form of social well-being, so improving people's outcomes. Actually, intimate relationships and other types of relationships can result in lower mortality rates, fewer cardiovascular problems, and there's also this idea called social capital where we can leverage our relationships almost as a form of capital like money. So they can offer support, they can help connect us with resources, for example, connecting us with, you know, navigating the healthcare system or mutual aid and advocating alongside of us. So all these can be especially beneficial to people with disabilities who face a lot of extra barriers compared to non-disabled people. I'm wondering how much of a factor is the structural world that we live in? I mean, just the physical barriers that many people with disabilities encounter on a day-to-day basis, how much of a barrier is that to establishing and maintaining close relationships? Yeah, it can be a really huge barrier. I mean, you have the physical inaccessibility of like not being able to get into certain spaces, for example, you know, that may be opportunities where you would naturally form relationships for, for example, um, work or social settings. Um, And then you have kind of the more social attitudinal barriers that can certainly hinder relationships and lead to a lot of exclusion. I'm also wondering about whether the housing situation plays into this question at all. So we know historically many people with disabilities were institutionalized or lived in group homes, for example. Now we see there's a move away from that and people with disabilities are encouraged to live in community settings. And I'm wondering if that was a factor that played into your research Uh, especially when we think about people maybe in group homes or other institutional settings, having access to or having the ability to form some of these intimate relationships. Absolutely. Housing can play a a big role in it. Like you said, historically, people with disabilities have been institutionalized and segregated. And of course, that would limit their opportunities, relationships. Um, Even today, like like you said, most people with disabilities do live in the community, but There's still a lot of physical, even though they physically live in the community, there's still a lot of social isolation. So that would hinder their opportunities. Um, People with disabilities who live in group settings, they may, for example, be like, quote unquote, brought into the community. And so they have these kind of outings, but that's not truly integration. And that's not going to lend itself well for opportunities to make connections with people both like and unlike themselves. So there's, yeah, that housing aspect can play a really important role because segregation and isolation is intimately tied with housing for people with disabilities. In our earlier conversation, you mentioned having access to privacy, which 
in some ways seems a little counterintuitive, but I, I suppose it isn't really counterintuitive. Can you expand on that a little more for us? How does having access to a private space or having access to private time allow for people with disabilities to develop some of these intimate relationships? What are some of the considerations when it comes to privacy? Yeah. So in terms of sexuality, of course, you need some private space and time to to participate in that. And if you live in a group home or you have roommates, you might not have that opportunity. Um, but also just like having the ability to be alone with a romantic or other partner that in some ways can be a privilege in these spaces where kind of people are possibly observed a lot. You know, time's framed to support, but maybe it's over support sometimes. Um, so if you just don't have that opportunity to be one on one with someone, then that might make it really difficult to foster that intimacy. That's a really good point. You know, I in one of the the things that I've heard from many of my friends who who were mainstreamed in school, for example, uh, and were often the only person with a disability in their class, is that they often, not always, but often felt extremely lonely and didn't have a lot of close friends. Do you think that stigma and perceptions around befriending a person with a disability might also be a factor in the formation and establishment of some of these intimate relationships that we're talking about today? Yeah, when we think about disability in society as large, it's at large, it's usually framed as kind of a, a top-down relationship where there, people with disabilities are seen as needing help and support, right? Which isn't necessarily true. But when you're thinking about that in the context of friends, friendship or a relationship, you know, people with disabilities are framed as like the receiver of that help and not the giver of any sorts of support, which isn't true. But that could be a real barrier. Like, like you said, in integrated schools, you know, the non-disabled person might not see a person with disabilities as an equal reciprocal partner of friendship or relationship. So, and if you don't have that foundation of mutual respect, then it's not gonna be a great relationship, right? And then we add on top of that ideas about sexuality and disability. So the fact that people with disabilities are sometimes framed as being like childlike or asexualized and not interested in or capable of sex, which also isn't true or relationships. So people with disabilities are framed as potentially not great partners, um, or there's kind of a, a taboo around sexuality with people with disabilities, which can all hinder people's opportunities and serve as a barrier to fostering these relationships. As we think more about some of these attitudinal barriers, one of the questions I've been wrestling with myself is whether in establishing or trying to establish a, an intimate relationship between, let's say, a person with a disability and an able-bodied person, or even between two people with, a, with different disabilities, how much of a factor is the ability to quote-unquote get somebody's disability or to quote-unquote get somebody's access needs put differently is it more likely that a person with a disability is is going to have an intimate relationship, I guess, with someone who first and foremost understands that disability and understands their access needs? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it can be both, like you suggest. You know, if they truly do understand, that can really help foster intimacy between you two, right? But if they don't, if they don't really understand disability or have stigmatized views of disability or, or kind of believe in those stereotypes of disability, in some regards, they don't respect your identity. And that's always going to be damaging to your relationship. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just trying to figure out if there's been some blurring of the lines or maybe even just a, a bit of confusion 
where someone might say, well, I guess I'm good friends with this person or I have a close relationship with this person because they get my disability, they get my blindness, they know what that is all about versus actually um versus actually you know having interests in common or having things that that you know in the, that jive that you jive as people and i'm wondering where one of those things ends and the other one begins yeah i i think that's completely accurate and that is certainly relevant to disability but probably like any socialized minority group i mean the foundation of any relationship isn't going to be like i understand that you're blind or I understand that you have a disability. I mean, first of all, they're never going to mean truly know what it's like to have a disability as a non-disabled person. They might be able to empathize. Um, but I think it's a matter of respect and just good relationship practices in general about communication and understanding um, that would foster that intimacy rather than just kind of knowing that identity. I think what I meant was largely that if that that knowing and understanding that person's identity isn't going to necessarily produce intimacy on its own, but if you don't have that, then that's going to be a problem, right? Yeah, I can certainly see that. I can certainly see how that might close the door on a closer relationship. With that said, now it feels like there are many more opportunities to establish communities and find closer friendships, uh, especially when you think about the role of social media, where many people come together on social media, um, forming groups with shared interest, shared disability objectives. When you think about social media, how much of a vehicle or a tool has it been to help people with disabilities establish and maintain those intimate relationships that we're talking about today? Or if I can, you know, even be a little critical, has social media even become a bit of a hindrance to establishing an intimate relationships for people with disabilities? It can be both. Yeah. So online social networks can really help reduce isolation and compensate for in-person barriers. For example, a lack of physical accessibility in a space um, can be a source of great connection and opportunity for new relationships. We can kind of create these relationships across space and time that we might not otherwise be able to and connect with groups of people that we might have trouble meeting in person. So really, it can be a source of new connections, but also can help strengthen our in-person relationships and help us keep connected with people. But then on the flip side, it's also important to note that people with disabilities are less likely to have computers, internet, and smartphones, largely because of financial barriers. But then also some of this technology can be inaccessible for people. Um, so on one hand, Online social media can be fantastic for expanding our relationships and opportunities. But on the other hand, there's kind of some caveats and, and barriers that might come into play depending on someone's access needs or access to, te to technology. I feel like I've been flinging that word disability around, you know, loosey-goosey. Uh, and I don't want to give the impression that all people with disabilities are the same because obviously they're not. But in our conversation earlier, you did mention that for people with severe impairments or with extreme communication difficulties, it might be a little more challenging to form intimate relationships. Can you expand on that a little more for us? Yes and no. So I wouldn't say because of that person's impairment, but because of a lot of the barriers that we've been talking about, right? So the attitudinal barriers, the assumptions about what people are interested and capable of, that's going to be applied to people with higher support needs significantly more often. 
um, and they're less likely to be seen as good relationship partners. And then also you would increase accessibility barriers as well. For example, someone with an intellectual disability, they there might be cognitive barriers to navigating social media because it might be just cluttered and too much going on and too much to process. So um, that can serve as a hindrance as well. One of the things that goes without saying is that for people with disabilities, they're often coming in contact with social workers, with personal support workers, and other so-called quote-unquote helpers. And when we think about the relationship between people with disabilities and their social workers or their personal support workers, I'm curious about how these PSWs and other uh, social service workers might either help or hinder in the formation of close and intimate relationships for people with disabilities. They can certainly serve as as gatekeepers, um, you know, assuming that people are interested or capable might lead them to not support people in ways that they need. Sometimes I've also seen these kind of artificial rules in place for in provider organizations. For example, I talked to one person who told me, the person with IDD, they told me that they weren't allowed to go on a date with their boyfriend until they had been a couple for six months. But how are you a couple if you don't have opportunities to interact with each other? It's like this backwards idea of not truly what a relationship is. Um, And then there's also, you could have people inflicting their personal values on people with disabilities. So either ideas about disability or things like sex before marriage or queer relationships. So that can also as a gatekeeper. But on the flip side, if we remove these barriers and so organizations can play a great source in supporting and fostering relationships. So, for example, through education initiatives, assisting people making choices and having opportunities just to like meet other people or explore what they're interested in or ensuring that they have that private space and time that we talked about addressing perhaps other barriers. For example, maybe parents can serve as gatekeepers. You know, they always think of their children as children, even if they're adults, which might cause them to overstep in some cases. Um, In in the U.S., for example, a lot of parents can serve as guardians and they think that guardianship means that they can say that their child can't, their adult child can't date or can't have sex, which isn't actually true. It's a little bit overstepping the bounds of what that guardianship means. So, support staff and organizations can help the person with disabilities navigate those relationships with their parents to ensure that the parents aren't serving as gatekeepers. And then, of course, providing accommodations, for example, related to sex or like if the person needs a sex facilitator, that type of thing. Um, And we do find that when individualized, individualized is important because it needs to be person-centered, when individualized organizational supports are in place, people with disabilities are actually 20 times more likely to have intimate relationships. So it really goes to show how much that organization can either serve as a barrier or a facilitator. We've come to the point in the conversation where we try to make a few recommendations. We've established through our conversation that intimate relationships are so valuable for anyone, regardless of abilities. And just in the last few minutes, you talked about a couple of recommendations for social service agencies to make to help foster some of those intimate relationships for people with disabilities. But outside of what you've already mentioned, do you have any other recommendations or thoughts on how people with disabilities can go about establishing some of those intimate relationships? And I don't just mean dating, but I also was thinking about just having close friendships, which we know can be so valuable 
to people in, in having a good quality of life. Yeah, I, I hate to keep going back. I feel like I keep going back to attitudinal barriers, but I do think that's a large role. So but those need to be addressed. But also in terms of supporting intimate relationships, I think education can play a, a key role. And I mean, comprehensive sex education about sex and relationships, not just kind of about dangers and, and STIs or anything like that. Um, so about relationships, sex, communication, that's something that a lot of people with disabilities don't get, a lot of people in general don't get, at least in the U.S. So that could really be beneficial to expanding people's opportunities and, and choices. Having done all this research on disability and intimacy, I'm curious about what you think your research might have taught you overall about human nature and the nature of the relationships that we form with one another. That they're really important and a key part of overall quality of life. They help with our emotional well-being, so we're less light, isol isolated and lonely, we have more emotional support, we have, can have a, a stronger sense of connection and community, um, kinship and belonging. Uh, for example, for the disability community, it can foster a sense of pride and empowerment and also actually physical well-being. So we have reduced stress, we have better health. So these are all important components of our quality of life and why relationships they're more than just about, you know, being a relationship with another person. They really can improve the rest of our lives as well. Hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. But I wonder if part of it is also helping us reorient our perceptions about what it means to live with a disability and what people with disabilities can, in fact, bring to a relationship. We noted earlier on that there's a misperception that a person with a disability is not an equal contributor to a relationship. And that can often be a deterrent to setting up some of these intimate relationships. So do you think your research has really helped us reevaluate what it means to be a person with a disability and to reevaluate what a person with a disability can bring to a relationship? Yes, I think one thing, key component of relationships is that idea of interdependence, right? That we all rely on wanting to each other for support, to learn, to grow. In our society, we tend to focus on independence. So there's this myth that's not actually true that we all do each other do everything by ourselves and we don't need anyone. Whereas independence recognizes that we all learn and support each other. Um, for example, if we think about, since this is kind of ab abstract, if we think about how we grow our food, you know, most of us rely on other people to produce our food, either to cook it or, you know, who's growing the food. Even if you think about someone who's a farmer who's growing their own food, they'll rely on someone else to help develop the machinery or you know, create the gasoline or electricity for that machinery or mine the raw materials to go into that machinery. So we're all interconnected. And so if we think about independence and interdependence in our relationships, it kind of disrupts norms about disability, which is often seen as dependence or lacking something or someone needing help. Um, when we shift to focus on interdependence in our relationships and more broadly, it recognizes that we're, we all contribute we're all valued and disability is not something like bad and sad as it's normally portrayed. It's just a different way of being and identity. And so that can really strengthen our relationships in a lot of regard. That was so well said. Carly Friedman, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. That was Carly Friedman. She's the Director of Research at the Council for Quality and Leadership. 
And I hope you will check out some of her research, which can be found online dealing with disability and intimacy. That's all the time we have for today. If you have any feedback for us, you can write to us at feedback at ami.ca. Find us on X at AMI Audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. You can give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. And don't forget to leave permission to play the audio on the program. You are also welcome to leave comments down below. And don't forget to subscribe either to YouTube or to the podcast if that's how you've caught the program so that you can be notified about future episodes. My videographer today has been Matthew McGurk. Jordan Steves is our video editor. Marka Flalo is our technical producer. Ryan Delahanty is the coordinator for AMI-audio. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. And I've been your host, Joyita Gupta. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>